So I just got back from being on sabbatical for the month of July. I had a, uh, it was a good time. Uh, it's kind of weird not being here for a month, um, but overall it was good. And so Todd uh, took over for the church. Todd is going to be a pastor here at this church once he graduates from seminary. He's at Asbury right now. And so then, you can come on up here, Todd. Uh, so Todd um, did a sermon series on identity in Christ. And so what we like to do, if we can do it, is at the end of a sermon series, we like to then open it up for any questions that you guys have to us about the sermon series. Oftentimes people ask questions that are uh, outside of that subject because the, what we do is we, when we're crafting sermons, we're trying to answer questions we assume that you have, that we have, and so then we share those, uh, you know, kind of uh, elaborate on some of those questions to try and help all of us to be able to navigate our faith. And so this serves as an opportunity for you to be able to ask any question it is that you want to ask. And this church, there is no question that is off limits. You can ask any question that you would like to ask. We will do our best to be able to answer that honestly. Um, because in the end, you know, we all have questions about God. We all have questions about our faith. We are all struggling with some aspect of our faith. And so if you would like to ask any question, and then uh, Todd will answer that in true seminary uh, seminary style. And so what you'll do is you'll just text this number, which is my number. And if your name comes up on my phone, everything will be anonymous. Um, so you feel free to ask any question it is that you would like to ask. Um, it's up to you. If you want to ask easy questions, you'll probably get easy answers. If you would like to ask um, hard questions of Todd, then you'll get very clear answers. Um, all right. So, as we were <laughs> sweaty, Todd. <laughs> okay. Um, if, well, this one's not about your um, sermon series. If someone is new to the vineyard, uh, what should they know about the Vineyard Association or the church specifically? Oh, no. Um, well, honestly, if you're new, welcome. Um, and uh, let me answer that first uh, differently than it was asked. Um, I had to be coaxed back to church in my late 20s. Um, and the things that were important for me to learn weren't learned by somebody standing up and talking to me about the vineyard. Uh, and, and truth be told, if, if this community had been something other than the vineyard, I think I still would have fallen in love with these people. Um, most of the important things about this community I learned just by being present and by watching and by, as an introvert, by working up the courage to talk to some people. Um, but thankfully, there are enough extroverts here that you will get tackled at some point. Someone will find you uh, and, and share with you. But leaning into... Uh, Community events, I think, is a better way to kind of get a sense of the human beings that you're around. Um, as far as the vineyard goes, uh, I think the things that might be important to a person would depend on where they're coming from. Um, liturgically or traditionally, uh, the vineyard is a laid-back, kind of a casual community. Where the, the liturgy is not as strict as, say, the Anglican church or the Episcopal church or what have you. Um, there's a very communal 
uh, spirit to it, um, where we love to have participation uh, of our community actively. You know, if you, there, the, I think the phrase is everyone gets to play. If the Lord has put worship on your heart, if you've been a budding musician and you've been looking for an outlet, then we're looking for members of our community to step up. If uh, you have been gifted with leadership or management or what have you, we love um, the participation of our community in the work of the church. Um, and, and we're very kind of spirit-centered. Uh, John, uh, John Wimber, um, well, I, I guess I'm going in two directions at once. Um, we love the Holy Spirit, uh, but also we love to do the stuff. Uh, one of the, John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard, one of his uh, famous quotes was, when do we get to do the stuff? He had asked some questions, or he had been pursuing um, information about the denomination, and it ended up just being information instead of action or, or participation or uh, or activity in the community. And he got frustrated with that and one day stood up and just asked, yeah, but when are we gonna do the stuff? When are we gonna do the stuff that Jesus talks about? When are we gonna walk into the world and be the people he's describing? So we love to be active. Um, so as you get plugged in and as you get to know us, uh, know that there are a number of ministries active from our community in the city. Uh, and it goes beyond taco crawls, we promise. Um, but also there's, I think, I've, I've noticed a, a deep commitment to the homeless and the needy in the city of Reading, uh, of which we have many. Um, so I guess that's one way of answering all those questions. But uh, if you're new and you've got more questions, feel free to come forward afterwards. We'd love to talk to you and get to know you. Uh, what should you pray if you're the only Christian at your uh, employment or workplace? Your workplace. That's a great question. Um, first of all, I would say... Um, that's a good question because the workplace is the mission field. Your schools are your mission field. The grocery store is the mission field. Um, we can get it in our heads very easily that the mission field is across the ocean. Wherever across the ocean you go, that's the mission field. But the mission field is right outside. Um, so the question, what should we be praying about work, is a missional question. Um, I, I, there's a quote, uh, I've heard it said that it's not actually what was, what was said, but there's a quote, you know, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Uh, I've heard that that's not actually an accurate quote, but I dig the sentiment. Um, I think you're given words for a reason. I think it's conspicuous that God spoke creation into existence. I think what we say out loud, for those who've been participating in the spiritual warfare class, we've been talking about this a lot. What we say out loud is powerful. But what we say is not all there is. And oftentimes, we have to earn the right to speak into people's lives by having established relational currency with them. And I think the best way to do that is to be a loving person, to be a gracious person. So if you're looking for next steps to represent the kingdom and to represent your God in your workplace, I wouldn't necessarily first or only pray for magic words to say but rather that you'd be thinking in terms of who you are in the presence of the people you work with. What their experience of you is, is a testimony to the kingdom of God. Um, so as a starting point, I'd be praying, how can I love well today? How can I be your child, your son, your daughter in the midst of these people today? And help me not to miss the moment when you're inviting me to speak the words. But I think for many people, um, talk is cheap. And so you want to give some weight and some equity to your words by having lived well in their presence first. How would you balance personal desire, doing something for yourself, and living for God or doing it in faith? It's great. It's a great question. These little softball questions. Um, 
I think I would start by making sure that you're not assuming those are necessarily opposing desires. Um, it is no accident that God made you who you are, that you carry a distinct person within you, that your desires, that your personality, that your temperament are distinctly yours. That's not an accident on, on God's part. If he wanted you know, eight billion of the same person, he could have done that, and he didn't, and that's not by accident. Um, and I think that like any parent, the Lord delights in you expressing honestly the desires of your heart. I think that's part of when the word you know, calls us to be like children, to be childlike in our faith. A child doesn't, overly, you know, doesn't think overly much about what they're asking for. They're just, it's just right from the heart. Whatever they want, that's, that's where it's at. And over the course of growing up, those desires change. But think that, I think that childlike desire, this is, Father, this is what I want. This is what brings me joy. Is there a place within your will for this? And I think oftentimes the answer is yes. And, and, and these things come God's way. But I, I think a, a secondary thought here would be the will of God is not some finite pinpoint that you have to balance on or you risk falling out of his will. It's a region. It's a garden that he invites you to play in wherever you want in this massive garden. That's what he wants for you. Where does your heart desire to go within that garden? Um, so I think, I think the answer to that question is to be praying both prayers, trusting that there is an answer that satisfies both prayers. God, where is your garden? Where is your will today? In my relationships, in my work, in the world, show me the garden that's yours. And then here is where I want to be within your garden. Here's my desire within the space that you've given me. I think that's, so again, I just, I would pray both prayers and trust that there's an answer for both. If hell is a real place, why doesn't it appear in the creation narrative in Genesis? <laughs> that's awesome. I like the creation narrative in Genesis because it is a revelation of God's desire. So I would speculate, if we want to answer that question from the perspective of the creation narrative, that it is not God's desire that we would be in hell. So we don't find in that narrative, if part of what's going on in Genesis 1 and 2 is God saying, here's what I want. Here's what I want for you. I want a beautiful world filled with lush life. I want to put you in charge of this, and I want you to, have, you know, to chase after your desires. Here's my garden. Go play. Go name the animals. Go be sovereign over my creation. Walk with me. It's, it's probably no wonder then that there's also not a hell in that moment because that's not what God wants for us. I think one way of looking at everything that happens after Genesis 1 and 2 is it's a consequence of one of the things God does want for us. Uh, choice is something that God wants for us. Um, and a great deal of the hardship and the evil and the consequence in reality is not the express specific will of God necessarily, but it is a consequence of him wanting you to be able to choose. And for you to have a genuine choice, to be able to genuinely choose good, that has to leave open the door for you to choose something other than good. The evils are necessary for the choice to exist in the first place. It's not that God wants you to choose the evil, but God wants you to choose. It's a, a, a fun brain exercise in this, in this same vein is, if God didn't want Adam and Eve to eat from one tree, why did he put that tree in the garden? I think the tree, among the other things that it represents, much of which we probably won't ever understand until, until we encounter him again, the tree represents choice. It's not the apple or the fruit or whatever it was only. That tree, by putting it there and then saying, now, listen to me, trust me, this one is not for you. 
everything else is for you. But there's a choice here to follow me. And this represents a choice. Don't go near this. Well, that's, that's a big deal. Choice is a big part of what he wanted for us. And I think hell and, and suffering and sin, while they aren't what God desires for us, choice is what God desires for us. And those things are a consequence of those choices. What do you think hell is? Does it exist? <laughs> well, I mean, the word says it exists. Um, to be sure, what, one, of the, one of the things that happens to you at seminary is you start to become increasingly aware of the things you have held as true in your faith that are the product of the scriptures and the things that are the product of tradition. Now, tradition isn't bad, but I think it's good to understand the difference between what we say to one another because we heard it growing up and what we say to one another because it's in the Word of God. Um, the Word of God talks about hell. It talks about Sheol specifically. It says many different things. It talks about a lake of fire outside the gates of the New Jerusalem, um, which is pretty wild. You know, the, the new kingdom of God features outside some depiction of a horrible, terrible place. That's, that's a wild part of Revelation. So it, it, I'm certain it exists. Um, are all the descriptions we grew up with, you know, necessarily scriptural? No. Um, there, there isn't as much detail about hell in the Word as we might like to be completely certain of exactly what's going on there or, you know, exactly who by name will end up there. Um, but yeah, I believe it's real. I think one way of possibly describing it is um, to, it's probably the place that is furthest from God. I think an interesting theological question is, could there ever actually be a place where God is not? And I'll, I'll leave that. I won't try to answer that for you all. But if there is a place that is as far as possible from God, from his love, from his grace, from his mercy, from his light, I think that would be hell. Um, and I think hell, too, one way to conceive of it is if you, one of the choices we're given is to say yes to God's world, God's creation, God's garden, God's reign, God's righteousness, or to say no. If you say no... What's left? What in existence remains if you say no to what God has made? So I guess I'll leave it that way. But. Um, this probably like really relates to your sermon series. Uh, is it wrong to pray to win the lottery? <laughs> oh, man, it's at like a billion dollars right now, isn't it? Oh, gosh. I have this talk with my dad every time we go to the gas station. We both just stare at that sign. Neither of us play the lottery, but we look at it, and we, then we look at each other, and we go, well, you know, is it wrong? Can we just put a dollar in there? What you? I have done far stupider things with a dollar, for sure. Um, I, I love the question behind the question. I love asking what's behind the question. What does the lottery represent to each of us? Um, I think for many people, it represents the hope of deliverance from the oppression of poverty or the stress of finances. I think part of the dream we all, I mean, I, I don't want to speak on behalf of all of us, but many of us attached to that dream, that vision, what if you won the lottery? Immediately, one of the assumptions we make is we'd never worry about a whole category of stresses ever again because we'd have a bajillion dollars. Whether or not that's true, and you can talk to some of the people who won and then blew it all and were right back where they started, whether that actually manifested as reality. But behind that question is, is a real stress. It's an anxiety. Uh, worrying about um, money, where your food is going to come from, whether or not you get to keep the roof over your head, those are real heavy stresses. 
Um, is it wrong to desire to not be under those stresses anymore? Of course, of course not. Of course not. Um, but I think we also have to be careful to be aware of where we put our hope. Where is our hope anchored? Where is our faith anchored? Do you, I mean, there, there are some things we yes and amen in church that are comfortable and intuitive to yes and amen in church, but you will really encounter the boundaries of your faith at home on a Tuesday when your bills come due. What's the first movement of your heart? Is it joy and hope and abundant faith in the Lord's provision? Or is it a moment of real anxiety? Where is it going to come from? How am I going to pay this bill? And I, and I would encourage you not to condemn yourself for whatever the gut reaction is, but be aware of that. Um, and I think, I think for sure it is wrong to, in place of God, start putting our hope in gambling or start putting our hope in government institutions over God. I'm grateful for the benefits of, you know, where my tax money goes. We had a fire a couple of years ago in my neighborhood in Jones Valley where many fires have raged. And there was an army of fire trucks and aircraft. And like all of that was paid for by government services. Super grateful for that. But the first thing we did was pray. Our faith and our hope is first in the Lord. And then we're grateful for the services of our fellow human being. So I'd say... It really depends on the heart posture, you know. To desire to be out from under financial stresses, that's not, that's not horrible. But where is your hope and where is your faith? Um, and just as surely as we invest our time in the direction of our hope and faith, we invest our money in the direction of our hope and our faith. So it's a good test, I think, of where our heart is. If God wants all of his children to be happy, why doesn't he find a way for everyone to be saved? Why make it a choice when some will never get an opportunity? <laughs> oh, man, if you all could just follow me to seminary, I'd love to just have these questions asked in our classrooms. Actually, they do get asked in our classrooms. Um, what makes you happy? And do you imagine that what makes you happy is the same thing that makes everybody else happy? Um, imagine for a moment that what makes me happy is to have the most money on earth. And there's someone sitting next to me who also is most happy when they have the most money on earth. Which of us gets to be happy in that moment? God can't make us both have the most money on earth. Um, so at, at, the, at the heart of that question, you know, happiness is, it's an easy word to say, but it's a complex concept to hold. Um, and, and the reality is I don't think Jesus was happy on the cross, crying out in anguish. But what Jesus was doing on the cross was good. So there's a difference between the things that are good in this life and the things that just make us happy in a moment. Presents under the Christmas tree make us happy, um, but I don't think life is reducible to just those cheap joys. Um, I don't think it's wrong to desire to be happy, um, but I think there are kingdom conceptions of joy and goodness that are much deeper than just the momentary thrill of a purchase on Amazon. So that's part, part one of the answer. Happiness is not... You know, our, a cheap conception of happiness is not the telos of creation. Um, why give us the choice is a great question. Um, last semester I was involved in... <laughs> so I, I, had, I had momentary delusions of maybe doing doctoral work in philosophy. So I took a pre-doctoral philosophy class and was immediately turned around on that thought. My gosh. Uh, that we read three doctoral dissertations a week and had to write a thesis in response to doctoral level thinkers every week. And I have never felt my brain get so sweaty uh, as it was in that class. Um, but choice was central 
to that whole semester. What a powerful thing choice is. To what extent do we really have choice? Uh, how much of it is instinct? How much of it is the influence around us? What does it even mean to have free will? Is it really free? Uh, these were central questions to our philosophical classes. I'll, I'll give the short answer because I know we've got limited time today, but central to God's vision of creation and reality is the idea of love. God is love. Love is at the heart of everything he's doing and everything he's making and everything he desires to be. My understanding at 41 years old, and uh, I've got more road ahead of me, God willing, to learn more, but at the moment, I can't conceive of love not involving choice. Obligatory love just doesn't seem like the same thing to me. Mandatory love, love under threat of reprisal, is not the kind of love uh, that I have fallen in love with. And God, the, the love that God shows us is not an obligatory love. He wasn't obligated to die on the cross for any of us. But what a powerful expression of love that is when it's voluntary, when it's by choice. When, when the Lord chooses to suffer even, it wasn't convenient for Jesus to die for our sins. Uh, when, when the Lord chooses to walk into difficulty for the sake of those he loves, that's a vision of love that has no match. But it has to have choice as a component of it. So I would, I would say part of the reason why choice is because love was an intended part of creation from the beginning. And for that to exist, choice had to exist. Does Christianity allow for salvation through other faiths? Example, Buddhism, Islam, etc.? <sighs> salvation comes through Christ alone. None come to the Father except through him. Now, let me just dip my toe in controversial waters a little bit. I think sometimes we're overly eager to put restrictions on how Jesus may be gracious to the people around us, how he may encounter people, when he may encounter people. I think there are some hard truths, hard in the sense that they may not be pleasing to us to hear that there's a boundary and people are outside of it. That doesn't feel great. Nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus. Hard stop, no exceptions. But how do they come to the Father through Jesus is an interesting question. Uh, the number of stories I've heard lately about um, Middle Eastern people, refugees in particular, of deep Muslim faith, um, heading to refugee nations and on the way encountering visions of a man in a robe named Jesus. It's amazing to me. Many of those people have come to Christ through means that don't conform to traditional evangelism. No Christian person waved a Bible around in their, faith, in their face. Jesus encountered them. Jesus, no one else, encountered them in a unique and powerful way. I think we have to be careful not to paint Jesus into a box about how the Creator wants to be creative. Uh, and when he wants to encounter people. But I am certain um, that there is no way to stand before God in the end except through Jesus Christ. Um, if God truly knows the choices we make, where we will end up, who will be saved, where does that knowing be... When does that knowing become predestination? <laughs> this, is so, this is a seminary question. Oh, my gosh. We have spent hours going around on this one. 
Um, for, this is an interesting one for me because half of my seminary brothers and sisters really like grapple on this one. And for some reason, it just has never, this has never bothered me. This has never been an issue for me um, or posed a problem for me. God's awareness of the choice I will make doesn't make the choice for me. So that, that's, it just seems that clear to me. Uh, how many people have seen Minority Report? There's a great, there's a great moment, and it's a movie about uh, these three precogs who can see future crimes, uh, and they set up a criminal system in the future where uh, people are arrested before they murder anybody. But it's, it's, it's decided that the precogs are so accurate that that's fair. They, they only see people who will murder people, and so before they get the chance, they arrest them. And so the argument is made, how is that fair? I wasn't going to do it, and and one uh, one investigator says doesn't doesn't uh, intervening change the event? Does it, the murder never did happen? So what are you arresting them for? This is this is the same kind of question. And there's a moment where, uh, as a response, a great visual illustration. It's Tom, it's one of these Tom Cruise movies. Tom rolls a wooden ball across a, a slope, and the detective reflexively reaches out and grabs it before it can fall off the table. And and Cruise says, Why did you grab that? And the guy says, because it was going to fall. He says, but you caught it. It didn't fall. The fact that you caught it doesn't change the fact that it was going to fall. So God's, God's awareness that you're going to make the choices you make doesn't change the fact that you're on a trajectory to make those choices. So his perfect knowing doesn't, at least in my mind, it doesn't conflict with the fact that we did arrive at the moment, we did have the choice, and God knew which choice we would make. That's not predestination. More and more Americans, particularly younger generations, seem to be losing interest in the church and in the way of Christ. How should the church respond to this? I wonder if, if people are losing interest in Christ or if they're losing interest in church. Um, we love our church. We love coming together for church. But there's a difference between the creator and the, and the gathering and the fellowship of people. Um, I, my impression is, as I watch my nephews and my niece, my impression is their generation is getting uh, really tired of talk, and they're looking for action. They're looking for substance. Um, we've never lived in an age where there's more talk. I mean, just jump on Twitter, and anybody and everybody will be happy to tell you everything you're doing wrong and what you ought to think and how you ought to feel. There's never been more talk you know, available globally to us than in this day and age. And I think that's getting old. I think that's getting as active and participant as people seem to be in that realm of social media. I think there's also just a brittleness to it. There's a shallowness to it, and people know that. And so they're looking for what's real and weighty, what has gravity to it, what has substance to it. If you say you believe and God does these things in your life, show me. Show me how God has changed you and transformed you. And I think that the vision of just nominal Christianity, of just the holy hokey pokey of church. You know, we put our right foot in, we put our, you know, just coming to church and going through the motions and then walking out and that's all there was to it. That's not impressive to a generation anymore and they're looking for something real. Um, I think that is more likely the case than suddenly people have become uninterested in, in Jesus. Um, it's just Jesus' people or the people who claim to be Jesus' people. Um, are doing a lot of talk without as much action behind it. Do you think that people who convert days before their death only to go to heaven will end up in heaven? Okay, so the, the biblical case point for this is Jesus on the cross 
and there's two people hanging with him. And they're at the moment of death. We're not talking days. We're talking moments. And one turns to him and says, Lord, will you take me with you to your kingdom? Or was that the oh, I should know this. I'm a seminarian. Anyway, one man acknowledges Jesus as Christ and asks to be saved. And Jesus' response to that man is, surely, surely I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's moments before death. Absolutely. There's no, like, there's no vetting process for salvation. Um, faith alone, in Christ alone, accepting the grace of Jesus, period. There's no timeline on that. Now, we don't get to play games before the creator. Some people will look at that and go, yeah, but then people can just sin and sin and sin and sin, and then as they're on the deathbed at the last possible second, there's a reckoning on the other side of that. You don't get away with that. God isn't fooled. Um, but, you know, he judges the heart. So a sincere confession, a sincere acceptance of who Jesus is, even at the last possible second, um, that's, that's, that is good for salvation, in my belief. How do you see our church engaging in the current conversation around gender in our culture? Oh, man. You sure you don't want to? <laughs> well, this is a great question on the heels of an identity series. Um, my, my go-to starting point when I get into this conversation with, with other pastors or with seminarians is I think we're starting at um, question eight instead of question one. Um, it's like trying to build a house by starting with the roof. The foundational question is not about gender uh, identity or gender ideology. The foundational question is about the, the bedrock truths of identity. There are things being said in our culture right now that just grate on me. Uh, statements that are being made followed by the words, this is who I am. Um, people are being reduced. Now, hear me, man and woman is not a trivial conception. God made that. Nothing God does is trivial. But if you reduce the, the, the finest, most real substance of who you are to just being a guy or being a girl, you've missed 90% of the, of the depth and the reality of who God made you to be. Um, and, and I think people are reducing themselves to sexual passion, or uh, some conception of, of an increasing number of possible genders, and they're saying, this is who I am. This is it. This is all I am. This is the most important thing about who I am. Uh, and, and I think this is happening largely because we're not stepping back to question number one, which is, what is identity? Who has God said you are? Uh, and do you have that solidly under your feet before you start stepping into a conversation about, now, what does it mean to be a man? To be a child and to be beloved, but also to be a man or to be a woman. Um, uh, to have certain attractions. If you have those conversations without having established the, the most foundational truths of identity in God, then, then I think you're just setting yourself up uh, for failure on that. So when I'm, when I'm going after this, I'm inclined to start with question one. I'm inclined to make sure that we've got the foundational truths. You know, if I, if I lose, if through some accident, all physical evidence of me being a man were removed, I won't be overly grotesque. But if you could not tell forensically that I were a man, I would not have lost the most essential part of who I am before the Lord. God would not have lost sight. Oh, where'd Todd go? You know, that, that wouldn't have happened. If I lost all capacity to have sexual desire or passion, I would not have lost the most important parts of who I am. There are people who don't have particular interests in that area at all. They're not born without an identity. 
in God. God knows who they are. So having those truths as the bedrock before you start having the more complex questions, that's important. And then the questions are important. Question eight is important. That's important to have, but in the right order, I would say. If Christ is the only way to know God to salvation, then how do we reconcile the fact that a just God created individuals to inevitably fall? The concept of election. I object to this question uh, uh, on the basis of its premise. The premise there, the wording there is, God created people to inevitably fall, which is different than saying God created people that would inevitably fall. God does not weave into people the purpose of falling. That's not how God creates anybody. I'm certain of that. Not even the angels who fell were created to inevitably fall. But God would have known, having given them choice. Clearly, even the angels have choice. Some rebelled. Um, so God doesn't create people to fall. But he does create people to choose. And some will choose. And some will fall. Um, so I, I don't know that we have to go much further than that. Um, the way that question is framed is important, uh, and I don't think I'm splitting hairs on that, but I don't believe God creates people with a purpose to burn. I know that we got kicked out of Eden, but what would happen if someone found it and didn't die? Could they look at it from above or some other way? I'm going to reject that question and ask a, a different one. If we were all in Eden still, I'll, I'll get to it. If Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, would we have video games? What would have happened if we just, if we stayed in Eden? Would we have industry? Would we have vehicles? Would we have airplanes? Would we have medicine? What would have come out of Eden if we had not left Eden? All right, I'll leave that alone for now. Um, can you find it? Man, I, I, I want to believe if, so here, the, the answer to this question is, it goes into the conception of genre. When the story is written about Eden, is it the intention of the author to describe 7,000 acres somewhere in the Middle East? Was that their intention? Or was their intention to tell a story of the idea of a beautiful creation, a garden, that God wanted to deposit? Like, it was the world the garden, the whole of the world, that kind of started from a point? There are some interesting, specific geographic features to Eden. There are rivers flowing outward. Um, there are some interesting things that seem to indicate that it is a real place. And I think some of the rivers named that are referring to Eden are still around today. I think the Euphrates or something is, is mentioned there. Yeah, like somewhere in the Tigris. So that's interesting. It, it seems to have some kind of conceptual anchor points to a real place on the real earth. That doesn't mean that it is only those things, though. Um, uh, so it's an interesting question as we study the word to ask ourselves, what did the author, what was the author, what truth, because I believe all the word is true, so did Paul, uh, it is all good for teaching and admonishment. It is all true. God made, no, God made no mistakes in inspiring the word. But what truth was God trying to deliver to us by telling us a story of making a world beautiful and then placing us in it and walking with us in it? Um, now, if it's real and if it's an actual physical location, you know, how, how old is the earth? I won't try to answer that for you. But over the course of the age of the earth, does it look the same? Uh, would it be recognizable as a beautiful lush garden today? What would it look like from space? I don't, I don't know. The Bible doesn't give me that one, and neither does seminary. Uh, but I think it's an awesome question. Okay, in one minute, sum up your sermon series for us or the point you want us to take away from that. <laughs> uh, okay, so we had four weeks. Um, 
There's a picture I wish, I'd, I wish I had brought. There's a picture I encountered the other day on the internet of a little lion cub, little tiny little lion club, playing at stalking something, a rabbit or something, who knows what the little baby was stalking. This cute little adorable baby that was not scary at all, facing the camera, stalking, maybe the cameraman. And behind that little cub was a full-grown lioness, also stalking, also facing the cameraman. Now that little cub was not much of a threat, not much of a danger, and it's possible that little cub didn't know that its mama was right behind it, ready to do some real work uh, if that little baby got into trouble. If that little cub knew mama was there, I think that would make a difference in how that cub perceived the moment, the reality, the world in front of it. I think it makes a difference in life to know who we are and to know whose we are. I think the identity of God, the reality of God is just as important as understanding who we are. To know who has your back, to know who's standing behind you in every given moment, fundamentally changes every challenge, every difficulty in life. It certainly makes a difference to arrive at that moment where you feel like you're encountering a difficulty and you're all alone. We know that makes a difference. But imagine the inverse. Imagine that the creator himself is standing behind you specifically, not figuratively, not generally, not behind humanity in some abstract, but you in a moment. How differently would you feel knowing the truth of who's with you and who you are? This, is, this goes back to the, the, the issue of answering question one first. Knowing who you are, the truth of who you are and whose you are, affects every other question that you ask and every other answer that you would give. It just reshapes reality. So I, uh, my hope was to speak to that foundational truth um, as we face and, and ask questions about all the other complex issues of our day to make sure that we have a good footing underneath us. And then I liked Gabriel's message two Sundays ago, uh, which was a great answer to the question, you know, how, how do we do that? How do we keep that in front of us? Um, and he gave us the passage of I'm, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Stay connected to God. Abide in God. There's no version of this where we outgrow the need to stay clinging to God. You do not ever become so brilliant and perfect in the Lord that you can just step away from the vine and you no longer need him. Every day from here forward, no matter how well you walk before the Lord, you need to be holding on to him to succeed at remembering who you are and who he is. Excellent. Thanks, Todd. Ex excellent questions. Love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, I, you know, one of the things, our church, we have several things that I think we do all right with, and some things we might not do okay with, and that's fine as well. But one of them is trying to engage with real questions, real life, right? We're all asking questions. We all have things that we're wrestling with. Um, and if we're asking questions, then certainly the people that don't know Christ are asking just as many questions. And those people that think the church is this or that or Christians are this or that. And so as we go out, the hands and the feet of Christ, that's who we are, right? God has a mission to reconcile creation to himself. He sends his son and then his son sends his church. We are the church. We are the people that go out and demonstrate the kingdom of God uh, as best as we can in all honesty and in all humility to reveal the kingdom of God here and now. And so uh, everybody has these. I had those questions. I'm all, that's, I want to know the answer to that. Todd, help us out. So it was excellent. Very thankful for 
everyone who sent up a question. We are going to end our service in the same way that we end it each Sunday, and that is through communion. On the last night that Jesus was with us before he was crucified, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you, and that his body needed to be broken to reconcile us to his father and that his body was perfect and so he allowed it to be broken for our broken bodies so that at one point in time in creation we will have perfect bodies like him and that the wine represented his blood that was shed for the uh, sins of the world our sins our past sins our, our present sin and our future sin and that when God looks at us now he sees nothing but his son he sees new creations in Christ um, and so the way that we do communion the communion table is open to anyone who follows Christ or anyone who would like to start following Christ today and the way that we do this is we come down the center aisle you will take a piece of the cracker and you'll dip it into the wine you'll hold on to that you'll go around the sides of of the pews here holding on to that so that we can all take it together and so if you are a follower of Christ or if you would like to start following Jesus today uh, then I invite you to come down and take communion with us
God, we thank you that you have invited us into this relationship with you. We thank you for sending your son. Jesus, we thank you for coming and dying on the cross for us and taking our broken bodies and making them whole through yours. We ask that you would help us to see you, help us to see you rightly, help us to ask all the questions we want to ask of you. Help us to trust you. Let's partake. All right, well, why don't we stand? I'm just going to pray a prayer blessing over us before we leave for the rest of the day. If you did want prayer for anything, um, then we'll have some folks up here who would love to lay hands on you and pray for you. This is something that we see in the Bible, that when people, believers, lay hands on one another and the Holy Spirit is there, the powerful things can happen. So if you want to pray for anything, something that you can't get traction on emotionally, physically, financially, whatever that is, we would love to have the chance to be able to pray for you. If not, I'm just going to pray and then you can go and enjoy the rest of your day. Well, Lord, we thank you for this chance to gather as your church. We thank you that uh, you are the head and we are the body. We thank you that we are the bride uh, and that you love us, you adore us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fill us. We ask that you would empower us to be able to see the things that you're doing around us, to see the things that you're doing through us, to be able to see the opportunities to share the kingdom of God with people who want to know you, that were created to know you. Would you help us to see who we are in your grand story and what it is that you have for us? And so, Holy Spirit, would you just attune our ears to your voice even more each and every day? And we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, have a great rest of your day. If you want a prayer, please come on up.